happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, joining you live from fabulous and below zero Missoula, Montana, where I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the State Virtual Public School, located on the University of Montana campus. And joining me, as always, is Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. Good evening. I think it might actually be below freezing here, but uh, we are, I'm sure, considerably warmer. I am Wes Fryer, the Director of Technology at Cassidy School, and I, I think I have probably I don't know. I, I, probably, I may have more Twitter IDs than you, but you're you're faster at rattling off, you know, your your where to find me at the end of the show. So I am excited to be here for our first show of 2017. And we will say that Eric Langhorst uh, was able to join us for our final show uh, last week. And due to uh, a family emergency is not able to join, but he may he may be tuning in to to join. He's one of our faithful listeners who's listened to every episode. So we should come up with some kind of a special digital prize for those people who have suffered through, you know, hours of banter about uh, maybe we sound like a broken record now talking about <laughs> AI. People are like, hey, yeah, whatever. So where are you going to take us tonight to start, Jason? Well, um, there are a lot of interesting things going on right now. Um, you did mention at the top of our notes for tonight, and by the way, you can find our show notes at our website, edtechsr.com, where we post all the links from our stories each week. And so you can go back and see the archives or find out the source material we're using to help uh, guide our discussion. But uh, Wes does note that the major tech happening this week is the Consumer Electronics Show, which is happening in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. It hasn't actually started yet. It'll get started, I believe, tomorrow. But the pre a show which is as big as the show itself um, uh, has already started. And so if you are an electronics junkie, if you are a technology junkie, if you are a ridiculously large television junkie, then this is a good week for you to keep an eye on the technology media. Um, I have not kept that close of attention to it, partly because um, there's so much and so much of what gets announced at CES is, is what some people refer to as vaporware um, or vapor hardware that it exists in announcements only and never makes it to becoming an actual consumer product. But there has been a lot of buzz around 8K televisions, um, which is a television resolution that's double a 4K television re re resolution, which is four times a 1080p or HD resolution, which is just ridiculously uh, more sharp than the old 480p televisions that we had pre-digital revolution. And um, I, I guess I'm, I'm duty-bound to ask, I, for being a super nerd, I uh, I mean, I have a tiny 32-inch, I mean, it is a 1080p television, but I've never really seen the lure of the 4K TVs. Wes, is there a 4K TV in your home? No, you know, when we went ahead and finally got a flat screen a few years ago, uh, we actually stayed with 720p instead of the 1080 because DVDs are 720 and we weren't subscribing to cable and I didn't think over the air. I mean, we do have over the air 1080 that we can get now. So no, I think it's a little bit like 3D television. You know, they're always trying to invent the next reason to throw away your, your TV and uh, I guess we are finally going to get rid of this massive Sony, you know, CRT thing that we have in our in our bedroom. Um, because when you look at how wonderfully small and light and comparably larger flat screen TVs are, you know, that 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 seems logical. And the fact that 
they don't support HDMI. <clears throat> yep. No, I don't, I don't think so. I want to ask you because I had tweeted about it because I remembered you did a pilgrimage to CES. What was that? Was that like five years ago? How long ago? And what, what yeah. are, what are your big takeaways of the, of the event? Compare a CES experience to, let's say, an ISTE or a NCCE. That, that's a really great question. Um, so I, I did, and I, I'm trying to remember what year it was, and I, it's it's escaping me. It was more than five, and it was less than eight is what I came up with tonight. But um, I, just as an interested consumer slash technology advocate, wanted to experience that particular situation, and I did. Um, and, you know, I'm not a buyer. I'm not a technology journalist. I am just a lowly consumer. Um, and so it, it, it wasn't necessarily aimed at me, but it is an extraordinary event. Um, that, that reminds me of two things. First, uh, everyone gets sick there, and I've heard a lot of journalists this week say that everyone really? gets what's referred to as the CES cold, um, which is uh, you know massive numbers of people in confined spaces um, that are hit pretty hard for, for several days. Um, and the second thing is, is that there is really every end of the electronic sphere there, um, whether you're talking about mainstream companies like Samsung or Sony or um, or uh, I was trying to think of a major PC maker. Lenovo, I believe, uh, does a lot of time there. Uh, Apple notoriously skips this particular event, but almost every other major technology vendor is there. And then there are hundreds, maybe thousands of really small manufacturers that are trying to make a name for themselves by putting out their relatively creative products. Um, it wasn't a show that I went to, but a year or two after I went, I do remember uh, there was the year of the ebook reader where um, the Kindle had finally kind of made a mainstream and CES was featuring dozens of major players and probably hundreds of minor players that were selling everything from, uh, you know, Cadillac e-readers, maybe the roughly akin to the Voyage, Amazon, uh, a Kindle e-reader today to $10, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, next to the cash register sale e-readers that were probably good enough, uh, you know, to, you know, pick up for, for, for minor reading in a pinch. Um, and that was an example of something that didn't really take off. The e-reader took off, mind you, but there is really no market outside of the Amazon, uh, Kindle e-reader. So it's always an extraordinary exercise in, um, uh, you know, what if, uh, in regards to technology and, uh, you know, you can oftentimes get a sense, maybe not what's going to happen this year, but what's going to happen two or three years down the road. Yeah. I think there's also perhaps a tendency, and this can happen at ISTE as well, to, to really focus on, uh, the glitz, the glamour, the latest, you know, right. uh, the gadgets, you know, versus the instructional learning and, and what we can actually do with this in, in the classroom. And I think, you know, we both, anybody's watch, you know, watching this show or listening to this show, <clears throat> you know, can, knows that, that we can go far afield with our excitement for the latest, you know, tech gadgets and news. But, um, I think it's very curious that, that Apple, you know, hasn't ever, hasn't ever attended. And, you know, I was sad to see Macworld go. Um, right. it, but I, but there's also a lot of wisdom in, in the decisions that Apple makes. So yeah, I'm interested. And I, I did, um, you know, pick up a few different articles uh, about, you know, some things that are coming out. In fact, my Geek of the Week is not something I've I've ever seen in person. It's something I've just, you know, saw as a result of following the hashtag. 
Um, but I will say that, you know, just as we can virtually and, and vicariously experience a educational conference by following the hashtag, you know, CES is in that boat as well. So, um, I don't know. It's, it, it, and being in Las Vegas, I mean, what, what could be a more, you know, experience the, <laughs> the hype and the, I don't know what, I don't even know the words that you say for that. The spectacle. <laughs> yeah, spectacle is actually the perfect word. And uh, to, to put a finer point on the question you asked earlier, comparing it to like an ISTE or an NCCE, um, I've come to very appreciate vendor floors um, now that I have some purchase authority, um, whereas as a classroom teacher, I, those conversations were you know speculative at best. When I was talking to a vendor now, I mean, when I go to a conference, oftentimes the key piece for me is having face-to-face sit-downs with the folks that I am engaged in business with because I want to be able to um, both negotiate and look, look, look to the future and keep that relationship um, fresh because that's important to, you know, the ongoing process of of adopting materials for for my day job program, um, but it's you know you, Wes, you're you, you're 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 hitting the nail on the head when you say that the spectacle nature of the vendor floor can oftentimes overwhelm unnecessarily people that might otherwise be good um, stewards of of, of those uh, customer uh, business relationships. Uh, every year, there's at least a half dozen prominent names that go to ISTE and will tweet from the the uh, floor of the show. Um, uh, legitimately saying that, you know, what is hyped this year probably doesn't have a lot of meaningful impact on ag tech or why is it that we're in our fourth or fifth year of there being 17 smart board uh, uh, clone manufacturers when, you know, I've seen a lot of great use of smart boards and I've seen a lot of smart boards with a ton of dust on them. And so why are we continuing to invest in these platforms, which I think are, are all important arguments we need to have. Um, but the, the kind of boat show nature of, um, you know, the vendor floor, you know, requires the right mindset to get something meaningful out of it. And I'd say that the value of different people serving as filters is tremendously beneficial because just as the web is, you know, overflowing with all kinds of news and information and, and um, I was, was reading some things perhaps, I don't know, whatever, over the holiday. I don't know if it was getting ready for the show, but, you know, the amount of information, I think it's actually in this book that was my Geek of the Week last week, the Raising the Floor book. It's sort of like the things that Ian Jukes would share at one of his sessions or, you know, somebody who's like really trying to get you to taste exponential change and growth. It's beyond our ability to process as linear beings, you know, how much information is going there. So by looking at <clears throat> what the uh, the tech pundits and the folks who are seeing all of this and then they're filtering it down to, these are the things to watch, you know, sort of like the Horizon Report. If, if you follow the right. Horizon Report, yep. we've talked about that on the show, you know, looking at these, you know, these key trends and, and things like that. But I guess there's also a value in it, though, about – um, the direction of technology and uh, the innovation and the creativity, uh, you know, and the, and the spark of something new, right? Because that's always going to be something that's going to catch people's attention, perhaps catch their imagination, spark their curiosity and interest. And, you know, from, from a student perspective, perhaps, you know, especially as we see technology, you know, appealing to broad sectors of society, not just some narrow, you know, bunch of 
white male geeks, for instance, you know, but, you know, I think there's a lot of value <clears throat> in that, in, in identifying those kinds of, of innovations and amplifying them. And it'll always happen at CES where there'll be somebody probably like with one small booth or something, but then, you know, it ends up on the Today Show or whatever. And, and you know, time will tell whether those things end up being uh, home run hits. But I think that's a, that's a really cool thing that, you know, the, the, it's, it's maybe it's a, the, the dream of the garage innovator, you know, who, who rises to stardom that there's, there's a lot of tough reality in between having an idea and getting it to market and, you know, becoming one, a one percenter. But, um, that it, it's, it's a cool thing to see people come up with innovative ideas. And it certainly is the biggest amplification that we have of that right now with technology. So, right. And then looking at, there have been a number of preview articles have been posted and there is a lot of talk around cell phones at CES, the other major um, uh, conference slash trade show that uh, uh, comes up in a couple months is the Mobile World Congre- Congress, which happens in Barcelona, Spain. Um, between CES and the Mobile World Congress, there is oftentimes a lot of releases between the major uh, cell phone manufacturers. And, of course, we're, we're talking about Android phones because participate in these kind of, these kinds of, of electronic shows. But uh, rumors of new offerings from HTC. Um, Samsung is, is rumored to be releasing some mid-range phones. Um, the Honor brand, which is a Chinese brand, unleash a an American uh, release of one of their popular phones. Um, LG is supposed to release some some phones, as is Sony. And then the major hardware manufacturers, uh, when, when I mean hardware manufacturers, I mean laptops and desktops. Uh, Dell has apparently already announced their wildly popular XPS 13 super thin laptop, which is a beautiful piece of hardware. Um, I will say, uh, having helped some folks in my office purchase those machines, we haven't had the best of luck on quality control. In fact, both the, we have two uh, in our staff, and we've had to send both of them back for repairs um, in the first month of, of their existence. But the, the the hardware itself is absolutely beautiful, and it's starting at I think it's like eight hundred dollars. It's a very reasonable. Um, piece of, of, of Ultrabook that you can purchase, but apparently Dell will be releasing very soon um, a convertible version of that, which is a flip notebook that you can take that beautiful form factor and then fold it into the other direction to create a kind of a tent effect or a, a tablet effect. And then the other uh, hardware manufacturer that I believe is releasing something there is, is Asus uh, is going to release new products under their so-called Zen brand, which was one of the first really popular Ultrabooks um, that uh, offer really thin, light MacBook Air-like existence, and I'd be also curious to see if they're going to release uh, uh, some some uh, uh, kind of genre-pushing hardware with um, uh, uh, Windows laptops. So I think these are all interesting things that could end up having impacts um, on on schools. Uh, there's a there's a pretty big bet too there that Apple is not making that other manufacturers are making, and that is that touch is going to matter for the laptop. Yep. Um, you know, we see that with Microsoft and the Surface and having full-blown Windows, you know, integrated in within the Surface. And I know several people who have loved Mac and love their MacBooks, and they are absolute fervent Surface lovers. And yep. I'm not convinced that I want to try that road, but um, it's it definitely catches your attention. Uh, all of us can suffer from baby duck syndrome. Yes, you can Google baby duck syndrome. And that's when we are imprinted with something at a young age or at certain stage of life. For instance, if we've, you know, grown up with, with interactive whiteboards being smart boards, you know, that's what we think we need to use and we're comfortable. And there's a, 
a fluency and a, and a, a, you know, real value in being able to stick with a platform that you know, and you don't have to relearn something new and have your productivity dip. <clears throat> but, um, you know, it catches your attention when somebody has really been passionately loving something and then they've actually changed. And with Android and the, uh, is it the yoga tablets that Lenovo's yeah. version of it, you know, and, yeah. and with Chrome hardware. Yeah. And with Chrome, uh, you know, with this merge that we talked about on the show last year, <clears throat> where a variety of different Chromebook models are in the not too distant future going to be able to have full access to the Google Play Store. And that is an innovation now. I think we can safely say that is huge and transformative, this idea of having an app store, not just going to download your updates, you know, willy nilly, yep. but being able to get them pulled down, having a store that can have a little bit more uh, control over the security issues, et cetera. So it's, I think that is a significant put on our, ed, our, t our education lens for looking at this, looking at what happens at CES with the uh, hybrid tablet laptops. And then, you know, seeing how in 2017, the Chrome platform, the Chromebook platform specifically plays out with this Google play integration. I think that that's going to be significant, whether that, you know, really changes things or, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure where that's going to go, but I will say we have got both an Apple store and a Microsoft store. Um, and you know, on a, on a personal note, we are, our headmaster, um, like our superintendent for our school is a, an avid windows surface user. And, uh, our director of communications is as well. So we on a campus of, of about, you know, a hundred and probably 50 or 60, uh, faculty and staff users. We've got two surface pro users and, um, I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't want to talk myself into it, but, if I hear more and more people uh, I respect, and, and this is what Peggy asked in the chat, what, what I meant by people who are not on the vendor floor serving as filters, you know, it's, it's when, when somebody that you consider relatively objective, and I would say somebody who's not working, let's say, for Microsoft or for Apple or for a particular company, but, you know, they're, they're vetting different kinds of technologies. And when they're saying, this is a big deal, this matters, you know, this, and especially when somebody says, this has transformed my life, you know, I pay attention to those things. And it's going to be really interesting to see, um, if people have that kind of experience with some of these, I don't know what they're called, but the hybrid, you know, tablet laptops. Right. Well, and I will say you mentioning the Chromebook for a moment. Um, I have not played with a Chromebook yet that can run the play store. So I, I was very tempted in November and I was very tempted in December and I'm now very tempted in January to uh, end up adopting one of the platforms that has that compatibility now. None of the but that's not in the stable channel, though. Don't you have to go beta or develop dev channel to well, do that? Well, it depends. There are three. Um, there are three Chromebooks now that are of the the thirty or forty, they're going to have the compatibility where it is the stable channel. You still have to turn it on, though, right? It's oh, not like the wow. mainstream yet. But the one that I've been tempted by is the um, uh, is the the Asus Chromebook Flip which is a, uh, a tiny 10-inch uh, Chromebook. Um, I've actually had it in my hand at a Best Buy before, right? I was, because it was, it was one of the first to have the, well, it's, it's still one of only like three or four that has the compatibility. I was going to buy it just for that because I was so interested in what the Play Store could do for the Chromebook and decide not to pull the trigger. Well, now there is the, a the Asus Chromebook Flip, Two, which was leaked last week on a Best Buy website, and then as part of their CSS or C, CES announcements, Asus has announced what they're calling the a Asus. 
flip C302, which is a huge mouthful of, of letters and numbers. Um, and it's essentially the, um, a flip two, right? And it is a, uh, it's, it's a $500 Chromebook. Um, they've made a number of changes to it. It's now 12 inches instead of 10 inches. It has 8 gigs of RAM. It has a 128 gigabyte hard drive, an SSD drive. It's got a full HD 1080p screen. It still has that flip um, uh, uh, form factor to it. So you can take it and flip it all the way around and turn it either into a tablet or the kind of a tent mode. And my hand gestures are not going very well here, but you get the idea for those of you that are viewing on the YouTube. But, um, the, the bottom line is, is that that I still think that's an amazingly compelling form factor. And now that they're putting some guts behind that and a fairly decent, um, Intel chip, uh, backing that as opposed to, I believe it's an ARM chip in the, in the flip, uh, or the Chrome flip one. Um, that's a compelling piece of hardware and I could see a school um, you know maybe wanting to go in that direction because that might last four or five years I, I sometimes feel sorry for some of the schools that were super early Chromebook adopters when the hardware was very very sad and meek that uh, you know kind of went all in on that platform expecting that the, the platform to last four or five years per purchase when that's not really that realistic for an ARM based Chromebook we purchased an ARM-based Chromebook for testing purchase, purchases at the Digital Academy. It's great. If you have one window up, it is it slows down to a crawl. If I'm you have a, you two up. windows I'm up, especially if that other one. <laughs> one sec. No, it's all right. Yeah. Different and... substance. Um <laughs> And you know, the the um you know those older slower Chromebooks um uh, you know I think have a limited shelf life to them whereas you know nice implementations more expensive right five hundred dollars is definitely not one hundred and twenty nine dollars but yeah you know, that that's a compelling piece of hardware so I'll be looking forward to that starting to go on sale in a month or two and that might tempt me to go in that direction and that's a critical piece for schools as well. We're looking at, at refreshes and I'm hopeful. And if anyone from our school is listening, this isn't again decided. Um, but are contemplating inviting some teachers to uh, be in a pilot project where they have a Chromebook and a uh, less expensive iPad. But thinking about longevity, you know, our return on investment on our MacBooks is phenomenal. Yeah. You know, the 2012 pre retina, uh, MacBook Pros, which have a built-in DVD, that has been the workhorse of of our faculty, and we can get if if it's in good shape, four hundred dollars today for yep. those laptops. Yep, and that's in in perfect shape, and we definitely have some that aren't. But when we think about longevity and return on investment and refresh and budget and all of those kind of things. Uh, that what, what you just said right there, just my ears, you know, perked up because as a tech director thinking about our budget and if we can do a five year refresh, I don't know that I can do a five year refresh on a Chromebook today, you know, like I could confidently do with a with a MacBook Pro. So that's an important issue for schools. And we've talked before about, you know, the, the flattening out as far as laptop performance and how much more do you need? And, you know, Ben Wilkoff is here with us. Welcome, Ben. And Ben is the one person I've communicated with so far who absolutely loves the new uh, touch tab or whatever, you know, MacBook Pro. What is that called? A oh, uh, the a touch, touch, bar, touch, touch bar. Yeah. A touch bar MacBook Pro. Um, so anyway, I don't know. Im, Im, implications. Uh, 
we have our personal devices that we'll experiment with and do, but you know, we don't have the luxury of buying new machines for, for teachers every other year. So yeah, uh, those kinds of, of issues are important when it comes to how long you're going to be able to keep it and, and what kind of life you're going to be able to breathe into it. Or Absolutely. Into. Okay. Let's take us to our next story. Okay. Well, I put a couple uh, actual quotes from Twitter uh, in there uh, in the, the show notes, edtechsr.com slash links. Um, the first one was the number of robots working in Amazon warehouses. And uh, <laughs> pretty interesting as we think about AI. So 2013, uh, and, and this is like, you know, 1,000, 1, then we go uh, 15,000. This, this is actually a good talk about linear and exponential growth because 2014 was 15,000 robots, 2015, 30,000 robots. You know, what do we call that? Well, you would have to see a little bit more, but, you know, it could be linear, increasing by 15,000, or it could be exponential, you know, doubling. And, and you might have thought doubling. Well, it's, it, it's actually linear at this point because 2016 was 45,000 robots. Um, but I've been doing a lot of reading about uh, AI automa- automation, uh, the replacement of jobs, <clears throat> the idea that a, that a basic income or a universal basic income is going to be something that we're going to need to probably face and talk about. And interestingly, and I don't know that we want to digress to this, but there's a, a whole political side of this of how much front and center do you want the role of the government to be in your life? And if the government is the one doling out a universal basic income for every citizen, anyway, there's probably a lot of libertarians that, that would have some problems with that. So that statistic was from John uh, Ehrlichman at C, and it was tag CES 2017. And then the other one was uh, talking about revenue from companies. And I think this is kind of an eye opener because I'm so I'm surprised that Facebook is not higher on the list. So this is 2016 forecasted revenues. Top of the list, Apple, 217 billion. Second, Amazon, 137 billion. Third, Microsoft at 92 billion. So let's not count out, you know, the boys in Redmond and girls and women. Sorry, I'm going to be shot by a feminist right now. Uh, and then Google, 89 billion and Facebook, 27 billion. So you know, Facebook caught so much heat, as did, you know, Twitter, but especially Facebook for fake news and power and, you know, how much anyway that they, they command in the economy. But those are really the big five. And uh, from a school perspective, I think we can be pretty confident these companies are going to be around for a while. They are all fighting to become our artificial intelligence presence, you know, for us to buy, as we talked about last night or last week on the show, the uh, Alexa or the dot, which, which uh, uh, Eric Langhorst said they had picked up. You've got the, the Google home. Um, we now have, and there's uh, an article in here, Mattel's $300 echo clone will read your children bedtime stories. And that's from the verge on January 3rd. <clears throat> Mattel, I think got some flack for these, Barbies that, you know, could people showed could readily be hacked and the microphone turned on all the time so people could listen to your children. I mean, has anybody ever really had that happen? You know, has any child ever been, you know, had their Barbie actually hacked? I mean, we've got a, we've got proof of concept things and then we have things that are actually out in the wild happening. But this idea of being able to dialogue back and forth uh, and, and the, the march of, of AI, um, the hashtag that really caught my attention as I was getting ready for the show is voice first. And I think I mentioned last week that one of my biggest changes in the last year was how often I talk to my phone. Um, there's an article from, uh, this is from one of our 
um, not Gartner. Yeah, Gartner says by 2019, 20% of user interactions with smartphones will take place via the virtual personal assistant. So um, anyway, it's been a big shift. I know we're on the early adopter side of things as far as using voice input. But uh, I personally am very energized and excited about the potential to have an interactive dialogue rather than a give me this fact, do this one thing, which is sort of where we are today with with voice recognition and the and the personal assistance. Yep. And I guess I'd be duty bound to make my weekly demonstration of Google Home. And I'm going to try something I never tried before. Um, hey, Google, who is Wes Fryer? See, that's okay. If it had if it had given us our, our street address and phone number, then we'd all be pretty scared. Um, so. and yeah, and I uh, and I got to say, um, having read a little more lately on what what it can do, uh, it's on the verge of something amazing. But yeah, I yeah, I totally get where you're coming from in regards to those pieces. And you know, I, I, to be honest, I mean, I don't envy your position, Wes. Uh, trying to buy for the future when the future seems really un. Uh, knowable right now, like even more than it's been in the past, right? Like, uh, you know, I, I think if I were a tech director, I probably would make a mix of tablets and Chromebooks would be probably my strategy. But, you know, for all we know, um, you know, I, Microsoft could resurge and, and start creating more compelling platforms. A lot of people do believe the Surface to be that. I know a lot of schools have gone all in on surfaces and da-da-da-da-da. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting time right now to try to take a, a, a district dollar or school dollar and stretch it, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of time we need to make it do so. So what do you make of, of the of the prices and the valuations? You know, if, if you if you had a couple thousand dollars of stock money to invest right now and you looked at those five companies, would would you have a strong opinion one way or the other on where you're going to place your bets? Um, well, I I think part of it would have to be Google because they're ignoring their hardware. Um, it, you know, it seems like they've got their fingers in other pots other than than hardware sales. Um, I think Facebook is going to um, continue to become more and more relevant. Um, and honestly, if Facebook if, if Facebook was due to burn out, it would have burned out a long time ago. In fact, they've had staying power that they have even through some missteps with data. Um, I think they're they're a worthy competitor on that list. And I guess I'm a little I'm a little short on. Apple slash Microsoft, um, and maybe to a lesser extent Amazon, um, from a hardware standpoint, because it feels like that, um, you know, obviously Apple will continue to make, make smartphones and they figured out a way to make them very profitable, but, you know, hardware's not flipping as much as it used to. I think people are holding on to stuff longer than they used to. Um, it's not as exciting as it used to be because I think hardware has, it, we haven't certainly exceeded the innovation, uh, of, of hardware, but it's just, it's harder to come up with interesting things to do with that stuff now. And I think the software is really where it's at. Ben Wilkoff has just put into the chat that he visited with a friend last weekend who programmed his own Google Homebot. Um, to list off beers at the local brewery or look up articles on Wikipedia. So that being able to take some agency, do some coding, interact with the AI. Um, I was yep. going to write a blog post <laughs> my, my last day of uh, the holiday yesterday and I didn't do it, <clears throat> but I, uh, I set up basically an information bot on the issue of UBI and it's not that technical, but basically I use three different things. I use Twitter, I use pocket and I used if this, then that. And so it grabs 
the um, tweets that that are either saying uh, hashtag basic income or hashtag UBI, and it puts them into pocket. And it also looks at Google News, and I think I said basic income, and it gets that phrase. And then it, if this, then that, will periodically grab those articles from Pocket and post them over to Twitter. And the, ha- the uh, Twitter channel, if you want to check it out, is just UBI News. Um, you know, I think being able to program bots to do our bidding, whether that's to do our research, to gather articles, uh, to find out what beers are on local tap and where I should go or, uh, I mean, that's obviously not going to be something for our, our, our young students, but you know, that is what I'm going to be really excited about. And with our STEM club and, you know, kids that are involved in programming, I'm tempted actually, Jason, I don't know if, what you think about this to maybe buy a Google home or an Alexa or a dot, you know, to provide that like to our high school STEM club. Or if, you know, what, what Ben is just talking about, if there's a way with code, because they're like writing Python scripts and, you know, they're they're beyond me. In fact, there's a Python script, I, I don't know Python, um, that somebody's written that will eliminate duplicates because one of the problems with my bot was <clears throat> that it would have multiple articles and, and I, you know, need to, a way to cull those out. I don't know. I, I, I think that inviting students to experience what's happening here on the edge of technology innovation is a is a good thing and as they have potential to write code and programs and to imagine well what could this do to me that's that's exciting and there's definitely educational implications and and benefits to that absolutely and you know i'm glad to hear you talking about um you know uh, uh intelligent personal assistants having that much more interaction with the world, um, as you know, I have some, some interest in this particular topic, and um, I also think that that uh, having students understand that before it becomes a real reality will be a new thing, actually. I don't think kids really understood the mobile revolution before the mobile revolution happened. In fact, I don't think kids understood the desktop revolution before that happened, or the internet revolution, no. whereas it does feel like these emerging technologies, which, again, are more software-based, but I think that's the nature of, of where we're at in 2017, um, you know, there is a chance we could have students become more cognizant of those pieces. Yeah. And again, Pachai in October has four eras, the era of the PC, the era of the Internet, the era of the smartphone, and the era of AI. And, he, and yep. we are at the gate. We are at the door of the era of AI to be – every bit as disruptive and transformative as those previous three eras were, and perhaps more when we have access to that. I mean, just think about, and, and, and there's folks that are further ahead about this, but you think about how much research medically is coming out. Think I, we spent quite a bit of a time with our, with our parents uh, and, and praise the Lord, you know, we're, we're blessed that both Charlie's parents and my parents are, are still with us. They're still alive, but drug interactions are a huge thing for the elderly and being able to not only keep track of new research, but also, you know, the specific impact of those for your medical condition and the drugs that you are taking and how they can interact. Oh, my gosh. It, it really is like Iron Man. I mean, it's thinking about putting on this incredible cognitive suit of power and, and being able to to grasp in. But but again, it comes down to algorithms. So I know everybody's not going to be a programmer, um, but talking about this energizes me. One of the things I've found, and this this fuels me as a teacher, 
is being able to work with students, particularly in a club format or an after-school format, and talk about these ideas and then have a chance to play with some of them, that, that's a real energizing thing. And so it, I don't think this is going to revolutionize the curriculum. I don't think somebody is going to be able to put, you know, Alexa straight into your, um, your computer science 101 class. But there certainly are ways that we can be talking about ethics within all of this. And I had told our, our academic uh, director that if we go to a, a, a schedule where we have an intercession, which there's a, a number of independent schools that do that now. So kids can take, you know, just interesting or fun classes, you know, that aren't necessarily a core. I'd love to do one on STEM ethics because I think there's a lot of things that belong in, in that. And then there's just also stuff that we're going to, I mean, we're going to see this thing develop before our very eyes. We're not going to wait 20 years to see the impact of AI, you know, inside our homes. This is, this is happening right now. So. Absolutely. Hey, Jason, did you see there was a Kim Commando article about Excel files opening the door for hackers to steal bank details? I've not seen that. That's, that's interesting. My wife is, or my wife, my, my mother is a huge Kim Commando fan. So, um, and she sends me articles regularly. Peggy had, had put that in. So it's happening through the WhatsApp. I bet, I mean, that's another literacy issue as far as, you know, um, authorizations and what we say yes to. We've talked about that on the show when, um, Pokemon Go, right, came out. Originally, when you logged in with your Google credentials, you handed them the entire keys to the kingdom of your... Am I remembering that right? I'm pretty sure that was... I think so, that, yeah. That was Pokemon Go. That, that it, it was, a, it was a, a glitch that they should have known. Like, you don't have to give read-write access to your entire Google Drive, you know, to play this virtual reality game. But, you know, people are probably... Just as normal needs to be shifted with password management and people using password managers and using a different password, yes, on every single different website, uh, normal needs to be shifted as far as people's awareness of what a big deal it can be when you click, yes, I authorize this for this app. Because, and, and some of those things are quizzes, right? Hey, find out what, you know, house you'd be sorted in if you were going to Hogwarts. You know, well, you may have just opened up access for somebody to, you know, Get any get get the data off your device. So I think those those kinds of issues are pretty big. We got fake news issues, but there's all kinds of ways people are going to continue to try to scam and take advantage of us. Um, okay, Jason, well, are you, would you be willing to talk about that technology and families article? That was one that I didn't read the yeah. recode, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that was really interesting. So uh, there was a really interesting article in Recode, I think it was today, and um, the article, which is by uh, Jan Dawson, says that we need more apps and devices designed to help families connect to one another. And Jan argues that uh, he feels as though uh, technology can be very isolating and that technology could be doing a much better job um family members and maybe even more broadly groups of people together to share thoughts and, and pieces. Um, he mentions a, a, a set full of, of good um, examples. Um, uh, uh, he, Netflix user profiles, which is something that my wife and I do use as very different Netflix users. Um, but um, uh, the idea is, is that the technology has an acknowledgement that you have multiple people in your family and that they may not want to watch or, or be guided by the logarithm um, that the adults uh, uh, might trick off or, for that matter, the kids. Um, uh, Apple's family sharing functionality was the second thing he mentioned as an exemplary uh, strategy, the idea that 
Uh, you could uh, uh, have apps that are family purchased, but also that there's a, a sense of parental control that, that dominates the setup of those visas. And then uh, Picnic, which is something I hadn't heard of before, um, but I, I think it's like a, a, a almost like a project management system for families would be the way I describe it, right? Like it, it allows you to share calendars, uh, meal plans, grocery lists, that sort of thing with one another. And in fact, there's a really excellent picture in the article um, of what that looks like on an iPad. And I'll admit it was compelling to me. Um, it's not an app I'm in the... Um, uh, um, the market for my wife and I, it's just the two of us. Our pets do not uh, communicate with us via smartphones. And, you know, we find a, a joint to-do list actually to be more than enough. But I thought it was a really important point that there is probably not enough development around how do we create functional uh, platforms for families to work together as opposed to just kind of creating their own world that they're stuck in. I definitely, definitely agree and have a lot of interest in that. I know my sister, and I'm not going to be able to pull the name of this app out, but there was something similar to Seesaw, which we see a lot of classrooms using now for digital portfolios, but it was just the idea of parents archiving the work of their kids and being able to share it with grandparents and other members of the family, you know, real readily. I'll, I'll find that, um, that app and, and put it in because that, that is one that's available now and it's pretty cool, you know, and it's all, it's all private sharing that you're doing within your family, but it's, right. it's set up for, for families. Um, also, are you familiar with the next door app? Is that big in Montana? Or have you heard of that Jason? Uh, it's not big in Montana, but I, I get um, like snail mail advertising on next door for pretty frequently actually. Okay. Well, next door is an app set up for your neighborhood and it allows you to uh, invite people either if you have their email or you can print out these cards that you put on their doorstep or their mailbox or hand to them. That would probably be the best way. Uh, and then they join and you can decide how much to disclose as far as where you live and who you disclose it to. Uh, my parents up in Kansas had used it several years ago. And, you know, it can be handy for, you know, getting rid of stuff or garage sale or, you know, we we just uh, actually joined ours, which is huge in our neighborhood um, in, in the last two months. Um, but we had a heater go out and ended up taking a look at recommendations that people had found, found this great guy in the local area and he fixed our heater, you know. So it's a, it's a thing that leverages the word of mouth, um, that would be more powerful if we were gathering face to face for, you know, PTA events or, you know, a, a, a block party on the 4th of July. But anyway, it leverages that for, for, uh, for neighborhoods. So. I I agree and would love to to see more apps that would do that because we've we've been using the family sharing now for quite a quite a while and it's um it's been a great way for us to be aware of just the apps and the songs that you know our kids are are downloading and um gives us an opportunity to be that gatekeeper um not that they're making bad choices but there have been a few explicit songs that we've talked about <clears throat> and um it's just, it's been really good. So I'd love to see Apple, you know, specifically since that's the, the platform of our, of our family with our phones, you know, innovate in that space. But of course, it's also neat to see something that's going to be cross platform and, and, you know, depending on whatever, whatever device you have, bring it, it'll work. Well, and then the other piece of this that these apps could also probably 
really make a big impact on is that I just don't think there's enough great tools available for non-tech savvy parents, right? Like technology is a serious tool that requires your attention and your, um, your thoughtfulness. And if you're not able to, you know, figure out how to shut down the internet for your kids at night, if it gets to be a problem, or if you're, you're not, I mean, I, you know, I, I think some of the parent control apps maybe go a touch farther than I would as a parent, but that doesn't mean I don't want parents to have the opportunity to, you know, crank things down or monitor, monitor what's going on or, um, you know, and, and some parents feel very comfortable, you know, handing the, having the kid hand over their phone and I know your code and I can see what's going on in your phone where others would feel intimidated by that. And putting more tools in their hands, I think, helps the, this generation of parents deal with what I'm sure is an incredibly intimidating and a very evolving uh, situation related to, you know, your kids and this amazing world that for better or for worse, they now have access to. And I, I heard somebody express this with our digital citizenship discussions this last semester. But, you know, we hand the same the same smartphone with the same capabilities, you know, to the, the 12 year old or, or whatever, you know, that we're handing to the to the full grown adult. And we're not fully appreciating. And I'm, I'm saying this as I realize I'm indicted on this, how powerful the interactive psychology of these devices is. It is addictive. You know, I needed to go to bed earlier last night and I was spending more time than I needed to looking at articles about CES and Twitter and, and those kind of things. And so I, I definitely think that helping students and then helping ourselves focus on mindfulness, on self-discipline. I at one time had registered the domain digitaldiscipline.net. I don't, I have no idea who owns it. Don't hold me responsible because I gave it up and I don't even know what somebody's doing with it. But that, that is an enduring idea that I think we haven't paid as much attention to in schools as we need to. And the note to self podcast, I'm, uh, I'm excited about their new project that they're doing. And, um, Anyway, it's, it's a reason why podcasts and the chance to, to have people be our filters and then to be filters for others. It, it's an important element in this, in this whole landscape. Uh, and, and trusted voices, right? Who, who do you trust? It's not as, as Eric Langhor said in our last uh, session, it's not just the, the major news networks, you know, people are going to all different kinds of sources. So, um, I heard, I didn't put this into the show notes, but there was a journalist who, and maybe people tweet this all the time. That was like, I'm quitting Twitter. You know, it's Twitter's worthless. And I, I think that it just depends on who you follow, right? You know, the astronauts I follow that are tweeting from the international space station are certainly not tweeting garbage. It's amazing, you know, but, um, it just it's it's a it's a matter of what channels I think you're going to hone in on and then being able to filter. I'm going to help my wife this year, I think, work with lists on Twitter and following lists on Flipboard, because, again, that, that those are good information literacy skills to filter your feed and to say, I'm interested in now, you know, learning about this or or really honing in on people who are sharing about this particular topic. So what else would you like to talk about from from our list of links? Um, well, uh, this is an interesting story. Um, CNN reports that uh, French workers now have the right to ignore their business emails outside of the workday, which would include evening hours and weekend hours. And I'm always reminded of stories uh, that came to light after Steve Jobs died 
um, about how notorious uh, he and his and his upper staff were about being ruthless about uh, you know kind of twenty four hour access to their employees. And I can't remember which. I want to say it was Scott Forsall or it was one of the upper Apple people. Um, everyone knew that from eight to nine o'clock on Sundays that you could have an hour off because that was the Sopranos. And apparently he was notorious for watching the Sopranos every week. So he got an hour off and an hour off every week. But man, at nine o'clock, be prepared for emails because apparently the emails were 24 hours a day and you're expected to kind of keep track of them. And, uh, you know, and I got to say, I'm not the model of this because uh, especially early on in my organization's existence, I was, uh, you know, mind the 18 hours of email a day, partially because, you know, if I didn't answer them, you know, we didn't have the staffing to do so where things have changed pretty dramatically um, now that we're in year seven of our program. But, oh, my Lord, is that extraordinary and a really big deal that that, that has occurred. So, um, you know, interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, the French have always uh, have had protective labor laws. Uh, there's, you know, very um, uh, critical um uh, vacation laws there, uh, protections for work week hours and, and overtime uh, uh, protections in France. But it's just really interesting that you know, there's a recognized right there to ignore your email on weekends. So I guess, Wes, first, uh, how's your evening email uh, engagement? And second, um, should we be considering something like this for the United States? Uh, you know, I think also looking at the, the growth rate of the French economy and other issues that they've got with labor and employment, I don't know that they're necessarily the model that we want to look at. But, um, of course, you have better, you know, perspective on that, having just, just come back from there. So I don't know if how much that changed your perspectives on it. I think it's not something that needs to be regulated, but I definitely think it's something that we need to be aware of and that leaders need to talk about and address. Um, I'll have to be careful here because I am not – how much I disclose because I am not a model of, of email um, inbox zero perfection. I have worked with people who are, and I admire those people and I am still working on that. But um, it's, I, it's something that we need. We all need to be aware of our boundaries. And this goes back to a, a book I'm, I probably mentioned before. One of the best books I've read in, in the last few years called essentialism and part of what that talks about is knowing your boundaries and and being able to say no and and this fits in with email you know and because the as soon as you you know reply as soon as you give out that that phone number that for texting um you know you open up the door and people have very different ideas about what boundaries are appropriate and not appropriate and uh I'll I'll, say, I'll tell this story and a credit to I won't reveal which one but one of our librarians I had forgotten this last summer that she was 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 on vacation with her family on the beach. And so I had emailed something to her and she, you know, in a respectful way, you know, basically replied and said, sorry, but and it wasn't a, an auto response. But, you know, it's just we, we need to be respectful of people's time. It's not healthy for us to be working 24 uh, seven. The tools that we have been given allow us to work on work far more than we probably should to be healthy. So 
Um, did, did your perspectives on on labor laws and, and this kind of a question change at all as a result of your recent trip to France, Jason? Uh, I would say it hasn't, although I do think they're on to something in regards to we need to find a way to, cre- to create balance in regards to digital devices. I mean, this wouldn't have been a reality 30 years ago because there was no way for, you know, the boss's email to wiggle its way into your home at three o'clock in the morning, whereas now there is. But, um, you know, I think one of the things we also have to consider, and, and I, I, I laugh every week, Wes, because it feels like you and I are both radicalizing every week regarding the, the future labor problems because of tech. Um, but one of the things I think is probably also true is that work weeks probably don't need to be 40 hours in a world where we just don't have enough jobs for people, right? Right. And so, you know, um, you know, 30-hour work weeks, 28-hour work weeks is probably not that far from unrealistic yeah. in a world where we have, you know, millions more people than we do have jobs to fill them. So yeah. maybe one of the ways to do that is to say that, you know, you need to make sure that your existence outside of work is not carrying the cloud of work with you. Yeah. Well, I'd like to take us to an article that will change us a little bit to talk about genomics. Um, genomics is one of those topics that Alec Ross wrote about in his book, Industries of the Future. And over the holiday, I, I was aspiring to write more than this, but I did write two book reviews about really important books I read the last year. And one of those was Industries of the Future. This is a book for, or a book, an article from December 21st, 2016 in a website I have never heard of before called Food Dive. So. I don't know whether that's credible or not, but it's by uh, Sasan Amini, and it's how CRISPR is changing the food industry. And CRISPR is a tool which allows folks to go into DNA and basically snip out pieces that are not wanted. And one, and this is mainly talking about food, but this isn't just food. This has impacts for every organism that has DNA. And the fact that, um, well, I'll, I'll, let me just read a little bit about this. Uh, CRISPR is one of the fastest, most precise and impactful methods for genetic engineering the world's ever seen. Monsanto recently acquired a commercial license, uh, making it the first license for agricultural use. DuPont's been working with Caribou bio- Biosciences for more than a year and is already growing CRISPR-edited corn and wheat plants and field trials. Scientists have been using it on plants and animals to include mushrooms that don't brown as quickly in the refrigerator, drought tolerant corn and virus resistant pigs. And one of the things that you'll find later in the article is that the U.S. government has decided it's not going to regulate this in the food industry the way that it does um, the uh, actual genetic hybrids because they're not putting things together. They're just snipping you know, DNA out and, you know, oh my gosh, this is, this is huge. Uh, from an educational standpoint, you know, helping students know what CRISPR is and talk about it. Again, this would fit into a great curiosity link that you might share with students. This would be a great writing prompt, right? What kinds of dystopian novels could you write off of this article thinking about some kind of, of DNA that's going to be snipped and changed and then what comes of it. But of course, science fiction is reality today. CRISPR is for sale commercially. And so I really think I'm going to be teaching a STEM ethics class at some point in my future <laughs> because there's, we may be radicalizing ourselves with uh, talks of labor and, and politics, but you know, when it comes, to, ethics is so important, right? Character education, this is a huge thing, no matter what your 
philosophic or spiritual background is, right? Helping people learn to care for each other and to make good choices. Like this is an essential thing that schools um, as, as social organizations do inside, you know, countries and just as, as, as entities. And so these topics are really coming home because what are you going to choose to eat? <laughs> are you going to read your food labels, you know, and are you willing to take the risk of unintended consequences? There's tremendous positive potential here in terms of feeding the world. And I think we already live in a world of food abundance. It's that we've got distribution issues and, and politics and other things that intervene for us, not, you know, feeding, feeding the whole world. But uh, I just I find this to be a mind blowing article that I can only barely start, I guess, scratching the surface of, of what the implications are. So have you heard of CRISPR before and what are your re reactions to this, Jason? Nope, that's that's new to me. And it is very interesting because it is, I mean, uh, again, radicalized podcast hosts uh, as we go along. But, you know, there are going to be 10 billion people on Earth at some point. Um and we don't, but, but really, our demographic stabilizing, cause is, that was something we watched, uh, at the dollar movie, um, the new Tom Hanks, um, oh, it was the Da, da Vinci Code, um, oh, yeah, I know what you're and, and that's not a great film. I wouldn't, I would, it's a good dollar movie, but, you know, but he, but their thesis was we're going to overpopulate and reach 20 billion. Isn't the world's population leveling out at some point? Um, a good question. Well, and I think part of that is because, um, um, we are going to hit, uh, like we're going to hit a point where there's diminishing increases because of resources. And I don't remember. We're at seven. We're at seven and a half billion right now. Um, and we're adding an eighty per year is the current rate. Um, I think it's going to increase. Well, yeah, it's going to increase, but at some point it's just going to be less. Um. It, the the rate of increase is going to decrease. So uh, yes, is is the answer to that. But we have a you know increasing population and uh, you know ignoring the resource tensions because of the diversity of of energy usage in um, the developing world versus the developed world and ignoring all those debates for a second. I mean, food is 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 a critical piece of this. And at the same time, um, there is a trend in Western countries to move away from factory produced food more towards localized food. And those tensions uh, are, there's actually quite a bit of tension between those movements because not that we need factory farming and factory food production to feed the world, but it does add some efficiencies to the process. And so when I hear you talking in regards to that, I will definitely uh, consume this article in a bit of more of a detailed way. Those are the kind of things I think about because I do think there is a, you know, there's a, uh, these things are going to come to a head, probably not in our lifetimes, but relatively soon. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be soon. This is an example of where reading a, a word or a vocabulary and, and, and causing yourself to be sort of sensitized to it. And then you recognize it. That happened to me because CRISPR was mentioned in this industries of the future. And so as, as I was scanning through again, it may have been CES articles or, or whatever, you know, it just, it really jumped out at me because genomics is one of the three main industries of the future that he identifies. So if you're doing some counseling for your own children or grandchildren, you know, trying to help folks think about chemistry, biology, um, the cross of technology with the biological sciences, genomics, this is, it's really big stuff. And I think that, um, <laughs> we are, we're, 
I don't, we, we're not ready, right? I mean, the, the amount of change that is, that is, uh, just happening, you know, right around us. It's, it's all around us. It's happening, but, um, we don't necessarily, uh, you know, view it, um, uh, with perhaps the, the lenses that we'll be able to, you know, in 10 or 20 years. So you've got yep. some other great articles that you put in there. And I know we're getting close to the top of the hour. Maybe we're there, but, uh, anything else you want to talk about from AI takeover to, the Trump effect from Mossberg or um, I would just maybe mention the Mossberg article. If nothing else, then maybe listeners would be interested in reading the article. Uh, Walt Mossberg is the a former Wall Street Journal writer that now is the editor at Recode and uh, tends to be more or less a, a, an Apple focused journalist. Um, but he writes, interestingly enough, that there's a lot of hand-wringing going on right now because there is a perception that the technology uh, industry in the United States will be significantly impacted by the Trump administration. It's just that no one can really get a handle on how. Uh, we've talked uh, uh, after the election that net neutrality could be an issue. Um, obviously, the, the labor question is an issue as uh, you know, there's obviously a movement towards uh, U.S. companies bringing um, uh, uh, manufacturing jobs back on U.S. soil or at least not uh, 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 shipping those jobs out. Um, uh, it was um, Steve Jobs that famously told Barack Obama that, um, you know, the Apple jobs that have left the United States are gone and we should stop focusing on them. Um, I don't know what that debate would look like in 2017 under a Trump presidency, but I do think that, you know, we need to keep an eye on, on, on how this plays out. Obviously, Trump is, is one branch of government. Congress uh, has been trying for years to uh, either protect net neutrality or, or simply get rid of it. So those types of issues will be important and do impact ultimately educational technology. I'm going to do one other article shout out and then let's do Geeks of the Week. Um, this was one that I found through one of the other uh, articles for CES. It's from New Scientist on November the 21st. Google's DeepMind AI can lip read TV shows better than a pro. Um, there was an article I think we included in the show notes about Berkeley and OER and how they were looking at dumping OER because it was going to be so costly to make these videos and media resources uh, accessible for 504, right? Because as a, as a public institution, you know, they've got obligations to uh, cater to folks who are visually or, or, uh, hearing impaired in terms of being able to, to, to get that content. Which that'd be a tragedy, right? All this free content that they're giving away and saying, oh, sorry, you know, we can't pay to have this, um, you know, subtitled. So we're going to have to do away with it. Um, that kind of development of AI is both exciting and scary. And the article actually says they didn't think this was coming to a security camera near you. But it could, right? I mean, the capability of, of AI, if, if you, if you're in front of a, of a camera and it's got a clear shot, I mean, being able to, uh, to lip read that, that's interesting from a security standpoint. From an educational standpoint, it's also exciting to think about, you know, foreign language films and this dream, uh, sort of like the anti Tower of Babel, you know, the universal translator. Um, did you, by the way, use translation apps when you were in France? Um, I did. And the one that um, uh, it was particularly useful for me was the Google Translate has, and I can't remember what the app that they purchased that allows you to put the camera up 
two words and it auto translates word, word, word into the lens? screen. Word lens or was it something? Yeah, else? word lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the the remnants of word lens have been sucked into Google Translate and it's fabulous. Like it it really is um, an amazing thing. And that you know I don't have much French. I don't have well I guess I have a lot of English, so that wouldn't matter in London. But um, but the bottom line is is that I you know I want to be able to just order on a menu or ask if they know English and the app was pretty amazing to do that. All right. Well, should we do Geeks of the Week? Let's do it. Okay. Well, mine is a hover camera. Um, there was actually somebody at work today who had asked me about, do you know about this iPhone, you know, <clears throat> hovercraft? <clears throat> the uh, Twitter, I, he wasn't talking about this one. There's a different one. And I'm not sure I want to put my my multi, you know, $100 iPhone just up with the low level of drone flying skills that I have. I don't think that would be a very intelligent thing to do. But uh, the hover camera, which is ho- the Twitter handle is hover camera. Uh, it's gethover.com. It's sort of like the ultimate selfie stick because you go ahead and, and let it, let it fly and then it, it follows you. And if you watch the, the video on their website, you know, this guy's like jumping off a cliff and the, you know, actually the hovercraft doesn't follow him all the way into the surf, but, uh, I don't, they're also touring some cathedrals in Europe, and I'm sure we're going to start to have rules. They're going to say no weapons, no personal drone selfie assistance, you know, to follow you and, and take pictures. So um, I've seen some stunning uh, videos of drones. In fact, maybe I'll put this one in the show notes via, I guess it was the Hyper app, which I may have used as a geek of the week. It it will show you kind of five amazing videos from the from the. Uh, last day or just recently, an incredible drone video of Aleppo showing the damage. It just it wow. looked like a like a I don't know a, a 8.0 earthquake or something, and you're just like, what is going on? And people live here, you know. And so drones are exciting, but here, you know, here we've got it coming to a personalized. It's like I think it's like 600 bucks. So that's going to be outside the, the the monthly disposable income of, uh, of most <laughs> of our listeners, I think. But it's uh, kind of cool. So that's my geek of the week. Awesome. Well, the one I like to share this week is a, a service I actually used in Europe, and I'm actually considering u- utilizing it for my parents' cell phones. TextNow is two things. It's an application that assigns you a free phone number and also allows you to make virtual calls via Wi-Fi on any cell phone or tablet. Um, what's interesting about that is, is that when I was in Europe, I did utilize local SIM cards. So I had a, a UK uh, mobile number for five days and I had a France mobile number for five days and I wanted to be able to text, uh, some friends and colleagues back in the United States. And so I downloaded text now. I created a free account. It's a lot of ads and stuff on there, but I was able to text back and forth, um, to my U.S. friends' numbers. Um, without issue. But what's really great about it is they also have a really amazing prepaid cell phone service where you can spend $13 a month and get unlimited text, unlimited phone calls, and only 100 megabytes of data. But after you use your 100 megabytes, it evolves to a unlimited 2G connection, which is not very fast, but will be serviceable in a lot of scenarios. And the reason why I mention this is because I'm considering moving actually to T-Mobile, which is now available in Montana, 
Um, and Wes gives the big thumbs up to T-Mobile. And um, um, and one of the things I want to do is go unlimited on the four phones in my account uh, with family that would use it and then take my parents, which between the two of them have used maybe a megabyte in a year of data and put them on a TextNow account where we'd be paying $13 a month to get them that access. So uh, very impressed with the service, uh, textnow.com and the text number and the app, which works on an iPad or a, a, a phone is free. So uh, I recommend that as a interesting way to to get access to texting friends, even when you're not on a, a cell connection. So we're at the top of the hour, which means that uh, we've uh, made to another uh, episode of the EdTech Situation Room. Uh, for all the links we talked tonight, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, where you'll find um, uh, links to um, all of our past shows and also uh, links to anything we talked about tonight. Plus, we usually have a, an interesting cadre of links that we never could get to in the hour-long format. So uh, my name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the State Virtual School located at the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And I'm also um, the tech-savvy administrator in residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education. I blog at blog.ncc.org. I'm available on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach. And Wes, why don't you take us out? I am Wes Fryer, and I have changed my Twitter profile to say I empower people to be who they are supposed to be and do what they are supposed to do. My favorite hashtags are create to learn with the number two, digsit for digital citizenship, and Ed, which is our educational hashtag in Oklahoma. And I have more Twitter channels than I will care to admit to you today, but I, I do have three of them. Uh, that I have listed in addition to W. Fryer, you can find me at, at EdTechSR, where we'll keep you posted on our updated shows. Um, the new information bot that I know everyone will want to subscribe to immediately, UBI News, and then my Eyes Right blog as well. Uh, my blog is on speedofcreativity.org, and we look forward to, hopefully, another exciting year of radicalizing ourselves and you here on the EdTech Situation Room as we look at the impacts of technology, not only on our society, but specifically within our schools and classrooms. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.